that these are areas where we are capable of working together, irregardless of what China does, and do it in a way that is globally competitive. For me, that would be my top priority. Let's stick to our knitting. Let's make this thing that has worked so well for 35 years work better today. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by the ever famous, fabulous Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hi, Scotty. Feeling inflated, but I guess that's the mode these days. <laughs> there we go. I'm excited about our conversation, you guys. We have some fellow podcasters more distinguished than us. I would say, Chris, the Trade Guys. If you haven't downloaded the Trade Guys podcast and you care about international trade policy, foreign relations, or just getting smart on the economy, I recommend it. Bill Reinch and Scott Miller are real experts. They're old friends of ours, and I'm excited to have them. So Chris, why don't you introduce the Trade Guys properly, and then we'll get right into it. That is fantastic. Well, the Trade Guys are former colleagues of mine at CSIS, and I, I've learned more from them than I've learned from most of my overpriced graduate education. So they are definitely the gurus on trade. And I'll introduce them separately. Bill Reinch is the Scholl Chair International Business at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're always catching acronyms and trying to make sure we spell them out. And he's also a senior advisor at Kelly Dry and Warren LLP. He served for 15 years as president of the National Foreign Trade Council, where he led efforts in favor of open markets. He spent 20 years on Capitol Hill, most of them as a senior legislative assistant to the late Senator John Hines and subsequently to Senator John D. Rockefeller IV. This is one area in which he shares a little bit with me. He is a SICE graduate. So I'll, I'll just put that in for the fans of SICE who listen to the podcast. Well, and I didn't know you worked for Jay Rockefeller. So Bill, that's really cool. We'll have to we'll have to trade Rockefeller stories one of these days, not on this podcast, but maybe on another one. Anyway, Chris, keep, carry on. Carrying on, yes. Now, Scott Miller, I first met when he was director for global trade policy at Procter & Gamble, a position he had for 15 years. And those of you who don't know P&G, it's a leading consumer products company based out of the great state of Ohio. He was responsible for international trade investment and business facilitation issues. He's a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Economic Policy, Trade Plus. And he serves as senior advisor to the Abshar Inamori Leadership Academy at CSIS. And Together, Bill and Scott are The Trade Guys, a podcast that has been going, gentlemen, for how many years? We started in 2018. We were we saw trade issues, which had always been important to us, but stayed mostly on the back page of the business section, moved to front and center in the news cycle, thanks to one Donald J. Trump. And so we decided there was a need to talk to voters in plain English about trade. And that's what we started. We were really bad when we started, but fortunately, our listeners put up with us while we got better. But we've been we've been weekly show since 2018. You guys do you guys do a good job. Oh, you do. And I listen to your pod all the time, but you do get into acronyms. So I figure you're for a very sophisticated audience because people outside of trade don't know things like IPEF, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, as an example. But Scott, speaking of Indo-Pacific, I... Uh, 
In my mind, I associate you with China. Didn't you do a tour of duty with Procter and Gamble over in China for a while, or am I dreaming that? I did a lot of work there when I was based in Washington. The, the part of that, my tenure in Washington, was the debates over China permanent normal trade relations, and so I had great familiarity with the operations of the company in China, which were basically we made made and marketed products in China for the for Chinese consumers. That's right, because I, I remember at the time I was trying to recruit you as a Procter and Gamble guide to the Canadian American Business Council board, and you said, "Well, Canada is really important, but I'm spending all my time on China right now." That's that's how I remember the story, anyway. Earlier in my P and G career, I did have a three year assignment in Canada. I ran the laundry business in the early '90s, so I lived in Toronto. My younger daughter, I have two daughters. The younger one was actually born in. Canada, so so have oh no so kidding, great admiration and familiarity with with working and, and living in Canada. Had a great one experience. My younger daughter was born in Canada too, but did you say you ran the laundry business? I didn't quite hear you. The yes. what? Yes, that's right. Yeah, Tide, Downey, those brands that you're all familiar with. So. Got it. Well, so before we get right into the questions, Bill, we've given Scott a chance to give a little Canada connection. Do you, have you got any maple flavored anecdote you'd like to share before we get into the really meat of this podcast? Maple flavored. I like that. My, yes, my mother was Canadian. She was okay. born in London and came down. Her parents had emigrated from, from England. My grandfather was in the Scots Guards and fought in the Boer War for the imperialists. And then they emigrated to Canada. She was born in Canada. They came down here in the 20s. My grandfather was a gardener, and he was the gardener at an estate of a really rich guy in the Chicago suburbs. But ultimately, they went back, but my mother stayed. And No kidding, and that would be the 1920s. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm old, but I'm not that old. It would be the 1920s. <laughs> my mother went to the same high school I did, and I was amused to discover when I got there many years later that there was still one teacher at the high school that had been a teacher when my mother went there, and she still had the same yearbook picture. Oh, my gosh. Wait, wait, what school? Where did, where did you grow up? Wilmette. I went to Nutrier High School, which some of, some of your listeners may remember or know about. That's amazing. I love it. Well, so we're all about, you guys are all about trade. We're all about Canada-US trade, which as we know is the most prosperous block or wouldn't you add Mexico in the world. So we'd like to focus, if we could, um, our conversation with you guys on Canada and the United States. And, and I think, um, Chris, if you don't mind, I want to start off by asking Scott and Bill to handicap a couple of disputes for us. So there's a North American automotive ruling, which maybe you guys could describe to us, but it's one that the U.S. lost. So I wonder if you could describe that to us and where it is, because I, I, I haven't followed. I don't know if the U.S. has said what it will do with its law. So we'll start with that, and then I'll ask you about a couple others here in North America. Bill, why don't you take that one? Yeah, that one I know something about, so I'll start with that one, figuring that Scott knows about the others. Well, this is, this, this is going to require me to explain roll-up. Uh, no problem. Which, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You don't have to do it. I'll just repeat whatever you say and, you know, steal it for myself in future interviews. <laughs> the way the origin rules are, are, are it has to do with the rules of origin for automobiles that determine whether an automobile is of is North American or not. If it's if it is a North American car, it doesn't have to pay the two and a half percent tariff in, that the United States assesses. If it's not a North American car, then it has a two and a half percent tariff. If it's not a North American truck, 
it has a 25% tariff. So this is a much bigger deal for trucks than it is for cars. When you com- That, of course, opens up a whole boatload of computational questions. How do you figure out if it has the requisite amount of North American content in order to qualify? And there's multiple different percentages for different different things. But the, the, the NAFTA rule, and in fact, the general rule in, in the U.S. has been, if you're talking about a part or a component, not the whole vehicle necessarily, but if you're talking about a part and a, a component, and it has 50% or more American content, that makes it an American product, okay? Or in this case, a North American product. And th- but then, this is what, what's called roll-up is, 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 comes in. When that part is incorporated into the into an automobile, even though it might have, let's say, 60% U.S. content or North American content, once, once it goes into the automobile, because it is deemed to be in a North American part and component, it's deemed to have 100% North American content. In other words, the content percentage is rolled up to be 100% once it goes into the automobile. That makes it easier for the automobile itself to qualify as a North American car because it has its own percentage requirement. So, you know, roll-up helps the automobile manufacturers because it gives them more flexibility. That was an after rule. That was allegedly, arguably, the rule that was negotiated in USMCA. What happened after USMCA was signed was that then uh, USTR uh, Bob Lighthizer made a different interpretation of the rule and determined that the United States would not count roll-up. So that a part and component that had 60% North American content going into a car, that would only count for 60%, which made it harder for the auto companies to achieve their higher, also increased content standards in the USMCA. And it also frustrated all of them because they had been under, they had had the understanding that, and had been assured along the way that the standard would stay the same as it was under NAFTA. So they were surprised and would have had this stayed. Would have to change all their their supply chains to comply. And the Mexicans and the Canadians were very upset because they thought they'd negotiated something different. They brought a case. They won. The U.S. lost and very clearly. I mean, the panel report is quite definitive on this that the negotiation very clearly left it in the hands of, of the way it had been and that that had been the clear understanding and the U.S. had signed the agreement with that understanding and made a later change. The United States, having once we lost, the United States simply made a statement that it would comply, but as near as I can tell, has done nothing to explain how it intends to comply and has done nothing to comply. So it remains to be seen how this will play out. It was at the same time when we lost several cases on steel at the WTO, where the United States there was even worse. It sort of thumbed its nose at the WTO and said, it's a national security issue in that case, and nobody could tell us what to do, and we're going to ignore it. They didn't say that in this case. They said they were going to comply, but has nothing's happened yet. Well, and what would the time frame be? Scott, do you remember? I, I don't I don't recall exactly when when there has to be a response. But okay, but it's a North American auto industry. The industry would 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 find the United States compliance to be of its to its benefit, regardless of where the firms are located. The decision well, came and, out last well, fall, the, I think, in in late fall. So we're only at the four or five month point yet, and this relates to uh, this is gossip. Okay, this is not. Oh, but, bring it you know, on. We we if we're not anything if we don't do gossip. The gossip is that the U.S. is slow rolling compliance on this one. The, the Mexicans are not 
pushing us, because they're the biggest losers here. They're not pressing us on this one because uh, we're slow rolling pressing them on the energy case which is going on at the same time. Yeah, things that things that aren't related are related. Well, you, you know, it just seems to me, and I think I might have learned this from you, Bill, that it would be pretty bad for the U.S. to lose a big case and then not comply with the ruling if it wants to enforce other countries' losses. So in Canada, it could be about dairy. In Mexico, it could be about energy or corn. So it seems like it would be a bad idea for the U.S. to ignore when it loses? One would think, and I think dairy is a good example, if we don't, I mean, we've already accused the Canadians of not complying on dairy. Um, If we don't comply on uh, on autos, I think the Canadians are just going to say, well, you just gave us a free ride on dairy. Well, and what, what do these trade agreements even mean if they're not rules of the road? I thought that was the whole purpose of having these things. Exactly. Well, I was just going to jump in and say, I mean, it's sort of echoes of the endless softwood lumber case, which you know, the U.S. would lose and then not actually follow through on a ruling, but make some changes so that in theory there was a response. And then we'd go back to the drawing board. What couldn't be settled at the negotiating table wasn't settled by trade dispute panels necessarily either. Or is that unfair? Exactly. No, it's not unfair, but it's exactly what Canada is doing in the dairy case. You, you lost. You said you'd comply. You changed something. We said you didn't change anything, in fact. And we're back to another panel. These things, this is a wonderful thing about trade. No problems are ever resolved. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm reminded of that. It was like a public service announcement where the, uh, the dad sees the kid smoking marijuana or finds his drugs and he says, I learned it from you. Poor Canada, we've given them all our bad habits. Well, let's, let, me, let me get Scott in here and I want to I pivot a little bit because we, we talked a little bit about your earlier days for Procter & Gamble selling to a giant Chinese market, really. And today, trade policy and foreign policy and a lot of our you know, general thoughts in the U.S. And, and around the world are driven by how do we deal with China. So I want to ask you a question that's a little bit different. It's not about how do we punish China, but it's about how do we, what's your view on how do American and Canadian, North American companies sell into the Chinese market, while at the same time, the U.S. is looking for ways to compete against China or tamp down on things in China that we really disagree with, like its treatment of the Uyghur population, like its, you know, dominance in, in critical minerals processing in a way that is environmentally toxic and, you know, terrible from a human rights standard. So how do we how do we navigate that, Scott? Well, I think let me start with an idea that's that's been a good idea for at least 35 years. And I'm going back here to the Mulroney administration in Canada and the Reagan administration in the United States when the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement was negotiated and approved, ratified by our Congress and, and the Canadian Parliament. That was a breakthrough because it, it fundamentally changed Canadian politics. And we won't go into that today, but your, your, your Canadian listeners will understand how, how important that was. But more importantly, the idea behind it is still powerful today, which is despite domestic politics, which, which often pushes us apart, we are both better off when we work together. All right. And the whole 35 year experiment reads to me like the U.S. and Canada have specialized to the point that we make things together in a globally competitive manner. And that is the, that is the nugget that we ought to focus on. Look, look China's gonna do what China's gonna do. 
All right, it's a it's it's a sovereign which has its own ideas about its role in the world. It's a big market, and so many companies, including Canadian and U.S. headquartered companies, are interested in the Chinese consumer for a lot of reasons, or are sourcing from China because that's the only place these materials are available. All right, and the most important thing that that the U.S. and Canadian governments can do in this space is to continue to sharpen the competitiveness of North America as a production entity. Look, we talk about supply chain resilience. We talk about the access to critical minerals. We talk about sophisticated technology being applied. That can all happen in North America and does happen in North America. And for me, the priority would be clearing out some of the barriers that are that are that are preventing that from happening efficiently. You know, I know there's a project on customs and and border border management where an efficient border benefits both sides and so those those kinds of initiatives there are also initiatives in the rules themselves in how we craft product regulation product standards in a way that capitalizes on what we do together best now you know canada and the united states share a very large share of the earth's crust about twice the size of china's part of the earth's crust if we want to mine critical minerals, we, it's likely we have as many as they do, perhaps more. All right, and we have we have mining and and resource-based industries, which have years of good practices on how to do it in an environmentally sound way. Now, these are areas where where we are capable of working together, irregardless of what China does, and do it in a way that is globally competitive. So, for me, that would be my top priority. Of of let's stick to our knitting. Let's make this thing that has worked so well for 35 years work better today. Well, you raise an interesting point, and my only slight amendment to that would be it's not, for, on critical minerals, it's not really about where you dig them up so much. It's about where they get processed. And today, China processes, you know, 85% of the critical minerals that the whole world uses, and they're willing to use that monopoly and power for their own benefit whenever they want. So that, to me, is is a bigger thing. But why don't we take a... Let's take a breath. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I'll, I'll let Chris get a word in edgewise. And I also want to talk to both Bill and Scott about Congress, one of our favorite topics and one of your favorite topics, and about the review, the six-year review of NAFTA, USMCA that's coming up and how you think that's going to go. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. Are you red, white, and blue or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Chris Sands. I'm here with Scotty Greenwood, and we're talking to the trade guys, Bill Ranch and Scott Miller, who are the hosts of a very popular trade podcast, maybe more popular than ours, but we're coming up strong over at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the trade guys. And Scotty, I'm holding you to your word. You, when we took the break, you said I could get a word in edgewise. So I'm going to start with a, <laughs> with a question. Good um, luck to you, my brother. <laughs> thanks. And it's a question about 
trade versus co-production. That was something that Scott raised a little bit, that we do things more effectively together. But we've seen a kind of an interesting pattern in the auto sector where we do actually make cars together. There's a lot of collaboration and, and cooperation. But on things like softwood lumber, often wheat, other, we may see this with oil and gas, where we're competing in third markets, particularly in Europe and Asia, we've often become quite competitive with each other. And this comes into trade policy because Canada's really tried to do a lot to open up markets in Asia and in Europe. So in your, in your view of us as co-producers, how do we minimize the conflict, even though we're naturally competitive, going after third markets? And I, I'll, I'll put one sector I'm really worried about, particularly LNG, where we're exporting LNG that some of it, which came from Canada, because Canada doesn't have the capacity to, sell it, to, to liquefy that and send it to our allies in Europe and Asia. So can, can we... Liquefied natural gas. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Another acronym. All right. Over to you, gentlemen. What do we do to, to bridge the gap between competition and collaboration? Well, look, I don't think it's possible to eliminate it, even within what we call an industry. Let's take liquefied natural gas or the natural gas industry itself. While there are industry associations in both the United States and Canada and many other places as well, those associations are filled with competitors and, and firms that are sharply, you know, trying to take market share from another one or, or whatever it might be. And so there's always competition as well as as collaboration. When it comes to investment, it, I think in, a, in an area like liquefied natural gas, the, it's been difficult to stay ahead of the, of the market. In fact, the first liquefied natural gas facility in the United States was actually built to receive LNG and not to export it because we thought we were running, before the shale revolution, we thought we were actually running out of natural gas. We weren't sure what we'd do. And so we were literally, someone had sunk millions and millions of dollars in, I think, Louisiana to build an import facility for liquid financial gas in the United States. Seems crazy now, but that was just 25 years ago. That's right. So the, the business change, keeps changing rapidly. I think competition outside, outside the United States or within North America is a good thing. It sharpens our industries. It keeps them better. And I, uh, uh, but that is, that's a natural outgrowth of looking at firm dynamics versus industries as a whole. I just, I just add that I think in your examples, I was intrigued. The, the examples of competition are all primary products. The examples of cooperation are manufactured products. And of course you can cooperate on, on manufactured products and autos being the primary example. You know, things, vehicles are shipped back and forth across the border what, six or seven times before it's a, uh, an end product. When you're talking about a primary product, you know, gas is gas, you know? Lumber is lumber. There's not, if you're going to export lumber as opposed to, you know, boards and things that have been, you know, sawn to particular sizes, there's not a lot of, of work that goes into it. So I'm not surprised that there's competition. I'm kind of in, in Scott's camp. I think competition can be healthy. Our arguments, which are persistent, as you pointed out, when lumber goes back at least to the 80s, I've I've tried to avoid getting into it for years, but not always successfully. But, you know, it, it, these are not so much competition, but it's arguments about the rules and whether the rules are, whether either side is cheating or not, basically, or adhering to the rules. Um, and I think in a way that's that's also healthy. We do have rules. Uh, we try to obey the rules. And I think what's important is that we continue to hold each other to 
to complying with the rules. And, you know, we'll do that to you on dairy. You should do that to us on autos. Well, let's re- let's remember on lumber, Chris, let me just jump in on this, that softwood lumber is actually not subject to NAFTA or the USMCA. It was considered controversial enough that it has its own agreement that sometimes expires. But Bill, and we've got several podcasts on it that I would refer our listeners to go back and scroll. We talked to Trent Lott, who's a tim- himself a timber owner, former United States Senator. Anyway, we, we, we go into softwood lumber a lot, but it Bill, you said it goes back to the 80s. I think it goes back to the 1780s. And I'm not quite old enough to remember that, but almost it's a long, it may be the longest international commercial dispute the United States um, has with Canada. So what what a privilege. You should tell me more about the history because I didn't know that. I mean, I started doing this stuff in the 70s and I remember the 1970s. And I remember <laughs> the, the issue from the 80s on. I didn't know it was that historic. I guess I'm not surprised, but but it would be interesting. I'd like to know more about it. Not now, but, you know, separately. Well, you, you can go check it out on, on Canusa Street if you scroll down in the history. But Chris, back, back to you But before I go too far down memory lane here. Sure. I, I, all very good. I love talking about softwood lumber, so I'm glad we brought it up. But I want to kind of go to something maybe else. We were talking about rules of origin. And one of the things that people read about now in trade all the time is a discussion of supply chains. And we've seen in the last couple of years, a lot of consumers and institutional investors are looking for more than just the label on the box of a complex product. They want to know that there's, there's, you know, what's the carbon footprint of a product? Is there any forced labor in it? Uh, any other problems with it? In our supply chains, do rules of origin that have us like, going into the measurement of what goes in and where it comes from, et cetera, have the potential to be almost a competitive advantage in an era of more complex supply chains. And Wilbur Ross during the Trump administration even suggested tracing everything back to raw materials as a way of really making sure that there was no foreign content into things. But can that be a positive in terms of really understanding how our goods and services are put together? Or is that maybe a little bit too much hopeful thinking for me? It's been a positive in the con in the climate context. So I yeah. think people want green products. They want them made with green technology. And if to the extent that people, the consumers are willing to buy that way rather than just simply talk the talk, that'll probably have a, a, a effect in moving the market and, and faster in the direction of conversion to green resources. Although, you know, keep in mind that there's a difference between, you know, walk and talk in this case. It's one of the axioms in America. If you, t- if you take a poll on Buy American rules in the United States, American people overwhelmingly favor Buy American, and then they all shop at Walmart. You know, it, it doesn't always have it. Uh, articulating and believing in the principle doesn't always translate into behavior. I think in climate, it is. People are genuinely concerned that their products be manufactured in as green a way as possible. And they're beginning to evaluate companies on the basis of that. And keep in mind, one of the reasons that's happening, I think, is because we have more sophisticated technology that enables people to keep track. The main one being the phone, uh, the cell phone, because you now you can, you can take pictures of you know, smokestacks emitting things. You can take pictures of people doing things they shouldn't do. You can take pictures of polluted streams and you can put them on TikTok to take another controversial word or somewhere else and watch them go viral. And you can create pressures on companies and, and out them for doing or not doing the right thing. And this, this produces complexities for companies. If you're a, a textile company, for example, 
H&M was a, a, a company that is neither American nor Canadian is a good example, that got criticized in China because they did not use cotton from Xinjiang and got criticized in the United States because they did use cotton from Xinjiang. And the companies often find themselves in a situation where no matter what they do, they're going to irritate somebody. And they hate that. But <laughs> that's the modern, modern technique. You know, there are Internet trolls. When, when Walmart at one point removed, in China, removed some items from its shelves, I think because they were Xinjiang-related, there were Internet trolls in China who outed them for doing that. Yeah. And there was a wave of criticism against Walmart because they took the Xinjiang pro products off their shelves. There was no announcement. You know, Walmart didn't say they were doing it. They just did it. They didn't get away with it. Now, the opposite would have happened here. If they left them on the shelves, there would have been the same protest. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting. You add to that the internet troll factor, you add shareholder activism, you add a backlash against, quote, woke capitalism that we see in many states, right? Where if you have, if you're a company and you're too far over, perceived as too far over on the ESG side, corporate social governance and environmental um procedures, then then you might get punished by a state government. So it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard to navigate. I'll give you an example. I can't name the, the company, but it, it, it happens to be a Canadian example. I spoke to a, a board of directors of, of a Canadian company that is in a business that is, among other things, is regulated at, at the state level in the United States. I think there's other layers of regulation, but there's a significant element of state regulation. And I, the thing they were most worried about was differential state regulatory, regulatory policies, particularly yeah. related to ESG you know, right. environment, social governance issues. And what they were afraid of, and what they were facing was, you know, the state of California saying, if you don't adopt these ESG principles, you can't do business in California. And Texas saying, you can't do business in Texas. Right. This is no way to run an economy. I agree. I agree. Let's, let's, and that's, that's political, by the way, in the state. So let's stay on politics for a minute. Let me ask you both. And I realize we're, We've, we've only got about a few minutes left, but I'd like to ask both of you about Congress. And the USMCA is the last trade deal that Congress passed, right? And But the U.S. wants to be able to do business around the world, so it's doing these deals that are something short of a trade agreement, trying to increase business with different countries. How Do you, do you guys think the free trade era is over politically in the moment because it's too hard for Congress to to do anything? Or how do you evaluate that? Maybe we'll start with Scott and then come back to you, Bill. Sure. Look, I, I think we are at, a, at sort of the end of the era in terms of free trade agreements, meaning these comprehensive bilateral or or plurilateral agreements that, that try to cover absolutely everything and try to achieve something very important, which is true openness in, in the market. All right. And some of that is is a matter of of of, te of technology. Some of it is a matter of diminishing returns that we've gotten to the point where markets are quite open for the relevant products. Look, you know, in the 1990s, everybody joined the WTO. It was the cool club to be a part of. But that brought in a whole set of rules about about national treatment and about non-discrimination. And, and transparency and a lot of great disciplines at the very basic level of commerce. And then they all did basically market opening agreements with their neighbors on the products that were traded most. That was the path of least resistance. And it's fairly clear if you look at the accumulation of those agreements, it ran out of steam about maybe a decade ago. 
right? And uh, and we've been we've been struggling to do something else since then, and haven't figured out what the something else is. But I do think it's it is important. I don't hold a lot of hope for the for the current approach of the United States because it is without obligation. It's all it's all these sort of generic talk, talk shops, which are which are not useless by any means. But they don't actually open markets. They don't actually solve problems. They don't keep markets open. And so I think we need to find something that works. Bill and I worked at CSIS on, on a commission to look at this. We came up with some recommendations about a sort of a two-speed World Trade Organization that I think, I think is probably a, a, not, a not terrible solution to things. But there's not much appetite for it. And in the meantime, so we are at the end of a, of a, of a, of a stage have been for a while. And unfortunately, domestic politics are moving us away from integration with our neighbors and commercial partners and not toward it. And so that's something we'll have to struggle with. Interesting. And Bill, we'll give you a chance to jump in here. But real quick, Scott, you said in the 90s that everybody was joining the WTO, which is sort of true, including China. And I wonder, you know, the policymakers we talked to regret bringing China in because it didn't turn them into American, you know, capitalist consumers. They're still Chinese, as as Ian Bremmer points out. But we didn't bring in Russia. So, you know, we, we chose... Oh, we did. Russia, Russia is a member of the WTO. It joined, it, it, it had two accession battles, one on its own and one with, with a customs union with Belarus. And I forget the third party, but they're a WTO member. Everybody, you know, that, that, that is sort of a generic thing. But keep in mind that regardless of how you much you want to relitigate the China WTO accession, there was massive reform. And to this day, China has the, has the, is the most open large developing economy in the world. The average industrial tariff is about 6% in China. The average agricultural tariff is under 10% in China. Compare it to India, a founding member of the GATT. All right, and the degree of openness in China to, to imports from the world are quite, is quite amazing. And the degree to which the rules of the, of the, of the WTO, this, this notion of non-discrimination and fair treatment is embedded in Chinese law is a miracle when you when you really step back and think about it and not repeated elsewhere I mean we have there there are, there are members from other parts of the world who have been long members of, of the organization that half their tariffs aren't bound okay so you know the, the, there was it was a tremendous gift to and most importantly to the people of China. I mean, they basically turned a billion people to, into the middle class. You can relitigate it if you want, but the, but this was this was a magnificent undertaking at the time, and I defend it just in, in pure in, in terms of pure human achievement. The number of people who were lifted out of poverty into the middle class in the 1990s was the, the greatest number in human history, never to be repeated. Okay, so I want to give your partner, Bill, a chance to agree or disagree with you. And then, Bill, I also want to, I know we've only got a couple minutes left. I want to ask you about NAFTA sunsetting and, and how that's going to be dealt with. So do you agree with Scott's, I know you agree with him a lot on a lot of things, but his view on China into the WTO being a good thing for the world and a good thing for China? On China in particular, I, I think, I was in the Clinton administration when that happened. And I think Based on the information that was available at the time, I think it was the only decision that made any sense. The reality is that, I mean, what, what the Chinese government said at the time was that they wanted to integrate China into the Western trading system. And I think I think John Zemin and Zhu Ranji meant it, but they're not there anymore. And that's not the view of the current Chinese leadership. 
So China's policy changed at the time. I think that I mean I don't think the United States was was tricked. I think that、uh, we did what made sense given what the leadership was saying at the time. I don't agree with Scott that that you that you can measure the. Openness of the Chinese economy based on tariffs—they achieve the same results the Indians do by other means. It's one of the most difficult economies in the world, I think, to do business in, unless they want your technology. In which case, they'll invite you in, and then and then they'll steal, steal. it. But <laughs> I, I I I begin the whole the larger discussion in a different place. I don't think that we've the we've come to an end of an era so much as we may be in a hiatus. But <clears throat> that's because if you think about this first as Global integration, globaliz- globalization—the tools that enabled that over the last 50 years were enormous reductions in the cost of transportation and communication, containerization, digital communication—all these things that we didn't have until the last, depending on which which thing you're talking、exactly、about,、right. 30 or 40 years. Those tools have not gone away; they haven't been uninvented. They still exist. Right. Companies are going to, and and countries are still going to trade in the midst of probably the worst bilateral relationship we've had with China ever. Well, not ever. Go think of the Cultural Revolution, but the worst relationship we had with them in years. Our trade with them last year exceeded 2018 levels, which was the last, you know, the pre-COVID level. Trade is booming, not necessarily to our advantage, but it's not like people are are abandoning China. What has happened as far as trade agreements? And by the way, there's still very strong support in the United States, politically, for trade and trade agreements. Ironically, more so in the Democratic Party than in the Republican Party right now, thanks to Trump. We can digress on that on politics if you want. But the what has happened is the negotiations about trade have become a lot more complicated. When all you're negotiating is tariffs, it's easy. You know, you say fifty percent, I say zero. Yeah, you can yeah. probably find a number in between that you can settle on.、Yeah. When you start talking about、uh, health and safety and environmental rules, when you start talking about you know chlorinated chicken, you know chicken washes, when you start talking about subsidy rules, where we talk to the Canadians frequently, the conversation is a lot more complicated. And when you get into digital trade rules and talk about you know content moderation policies and talk about data localization policies and free flow of data policies. You're not only talking about trade policies; you're talking about things that affect the way people live daily, and the individual things that happen to them daily. So the stakes are much higher, and nobody should be surprised that there's a lot more public interest in what's being negotiated. I mean, who cares about the tariff? I mean, you know, so you know, so your T-shirt is nine ninety nine instead of ten ninety nine. I mean, that's important from a macroeconomic standpoint of view. Standpoint, but it doesn't get people's frothing at the mouth like changes in you know, like banning TikTok will or changes in digital trade rules. So the negotiations are more complicated. So it should be no surprise that we're not having a lot of a lot of success with them right now. This administration has done exactly what Scott said, and there I agree with him. You know, they've gone down a path that doesn't involve binding commitments on much of anything, and involves asking other countries to do good things. Good sustainability things, good labor things. You know, pay your workers more. Anti-corruption. These are all good things, but they're all expensive things. They're either politically expensive or financially expensive in these countries. And when the countries say, "Where's our incentive? You know, what are you offering us to do these things that for us are difficult?" The answer from the United States so far is, "Well, they're good things. 
And you should do them because they're good things. And I think Scott and I agree that that's not going to be good enough to move the needle very much. So in the short run, I don't see optimism for negotiations, but I wouldn't abandon the concept. I think we can get back to it. Well, I, I, you're very generous with your time. I know we haven't had a chance to cover everything. I'd love to have you guys back sometime. I really do want to talk about the USMCA sunset, but we don't have time today. So let's yeah. let's give you the lightning round if there's anything you want to close on, and then and then we'll wrap it up. So first to you, Scott. Well, look, there's a lot of the, the, the work that's being done in these voluntary forums in both the Indo-Pacific and in the Americas has to do with digital trade. And here, Canada is at going different direction than the United States and is an area of potential conflict, both from you know, just in a pure trade standpoint. As I read the Bill C-18, it, it's clearly got national treatment problems and, and probably performance requirements when you really get down to it. So it's got some trade problems in itself without regard to, to what it does and, and the distortions and what it means to carry Canadian comment, content. So I think there's a there's something fruitful to work on there, but that's where we're going in opposite directions. Thanks, Scott. Bill, last word? I endorse what Scott said. I've always been bemused by the fact that two countries that are politically very close, I have a history that's been intertwined for a long time, has, I think, what do, we, what do they say, the largest undefended land border in the world. We still can't get over these picky little issues that have been plaguing us since the 1780s, to go back to Scotty. So, we're, you know, we're arguing about lumber. We're arguing about dairy. We Sometimes we argue about water. We've argued about water and, I mean, autos in the past. Now it looks like we're going to be arguing about digital issues. It's, I, I don't understand why we can't be bigger than that, because we're bigger than that on the big issues. Maybe that's just the price you pay. If you can reach agreement on the large, you know, the large, overwhelming geopolitical issues, maybe you have to provide allowances or us to go after each other on some of the small. And, you know, it, obviously it's, it's politics in both countries. You know, there are constituents that feel very strongly on these things and they're very active. But I hope we can, you know, the, the, the recent meeting of the two presidents focused on a lot of big pictures and some of the things that Scott talked about, minerals cooperation, for example, and, you know, emerging tech cooperation, which I think is very important. I hope some of the smaller issues don't get lost in the shuffle and we can eventually find a way to resolve them as well. Well, I hope I hope you're right. And I want to say thank you to both of you, both of you trade guys. You're so much more than just trade guys, but trade is awfully important. And in the Canada-US context, it's a huge part of our success, notwithstanding these picky little issues that Bill described. So thanks so much for joining us, you guys. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us. Honestly, I hope I wasn't fangirling too much. I really do love that podcast. <laughs> Those guys, I learn a lot every time. I do too. And I have a new appreciation for Andrew Schwartz, who's usually the moderator, works over at CSIS and tries to keep them firing on all cylinders because you were great, Scotty. But I, you know, I was thinking, oh my gosh, everything they said had me thinking of more questions. Well, no, exactly. I mean, I could truly, we're going to have to do a couple more podcasts. And Scott mentioned C-18, which is a bill in the Canadian Parliament having to do, you know, there there are several bills going through Canadian Parliament that we should talk about, actually, because they have impacts. They have Canada-US impacts. And, and Bill said he wants to learn more about softwood lumber. So I hope he goes back and learns something from Canusa Street, because we have talked to, I don't know how you make a trade dispute like softwood lumber interesting, but Chris, I think we managed to do it maybe 
in our previous episodes. We, we have, and I would say that it's to the credit of both co- governments that one of the most pernicious disputes that goes almost as far back as that were fisheries disputes. And we seem to have largely resolved those. So, you know, we can actually do pretty well over time, but there are problems that are still there. And that's why we have trade guys to help us figure out the ins and outs of disputes that, even though we're friends, keep coming back. Well, that's right. And, you know, one other point I'll just observation I'll make, Chris, is Bill talked about how confusing it is or perplexing it is that these little picayune issues keep coming between us. And I actually think that's the privilege of a relationship that gets it mostly right on the big issues. We are mostly aligned. So we we do pick at each other from time to time. But, you know, on a future issue of Canusa Street or episode, we can talk about the big issues where we're maybe not aligned because we pretty much are, but there are some big ones where we're not. So that that's a little teaser for the future. Absolutely. Well, everyone who's listening today will be tuning in, I'm sure. And uh, I'll just look forward to the next chance to be here again with you on Canusa Street, Scotty. Sounds good, my friend. See you next time. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.